0: Farming with Nature is proudly brought to you by SSK. Work together, win together.
1: Welcome to episode five of the Conservation Agriculture podcast series. My name is Andrew Ardington and I'm from the Regenerative Agriculture Association of Southern Africa. My co-host is Hank De Beer. In episode five, entitled Failing to Yield, what are the limits of conservation agriculture? Henk and I will be chatting with Dr. Johan Strauss, Head Conservation Agriculture Researcher for the Western Cape Department of Agriculture. In this episode, we'll explore the criticisms and limits of conservation agriculture and what can be achieved in row cropping systems with conservation agriculture. What we're going to discuss now is the disadvantages of conservation agriculture how sustainable is this how can it be used or is it succeeding in overcoming low yields and what do we do about this what are the limits of conservation tillage
2: i know there's a perception that once you start changing that people will say oh but your your yields drop initially for four to five years we never had that experience in terms of our trials our biggest challenge is, is obviously rain, the biggest impact in terms of yields, having low yields and stuff like that. But a thing that one needs to keep in mind is, again, coming back to the whole idea of the system as a whole. If you're just doing one of the legs or two of the legs, yet you will have certain success, but the real success lies in the whole package. If you start from, say, conventional, you want to go across to conservation agriculture, you actually need to think about how you're going to do it. Some of the guys that initiated the whole idea of conservation agriculture put forth a set of rules. Not hard and fast rules, but it's set up in a way that actually help you to do the change. First thing is to read as much as you can about the subject. Go talk to people who is actually doing it. Not necessarily a researcher like myself or... Go talk to another farmer that has implemented it. I remember we once visited, every so often do a tour with our Western Cape CA group. We'll go and visit the north, go visit farmers there and speak to um, And it happened so that we just met a farmer outside of Johannesburg that has implemented CA. And we spoke to him and he said that he actually, for five years, kept talking to a friend that has changed. And it worked it out for himself. And then when he was ready, he actually made a wholesale change in one go. You don't have to do it that way. But the basic rules is get the knowledge, talk to people, start small. And remember, you have to fix some of the issues you have on farm that was caused by a plow. I know there's a saying that, say, iron can't fix iron's problems. But unfortunately, if you were tilling for a long time, there's probably plow banks or layers in the soil that needs to be negated. You have to fix the PA, any shortages in terms of initial minerals must be set right. If the pH isn't correct, put in and work in your your lime, or whatever the case may be. Then start on one camp, say 10% of your farm. Get the feeling for the system before going wholesale, and then remember it is a time thing. You might not see a success in year one, you might not see a success in year two. But as the system goes, it just starts rewarding you more and more and more. And the longer you go on, I know the Afrikaans' word is called fate. You get used to sort of in the rhythm of things. It just becomes easier. Even doing research, we make mistakes. You try something as a rotational crop and there's a pickup and it doesn't work. But you need to learn from that mistake and move on. Don't dwell on it too much. Because if you start dwelling on little mistakes, it becomes a big thing. Start small if you can, which is better than going wholesale at one stage and one go. Another problem is it is expensive to buy the equipment. It is specialized equipment. So if there was a way in which if you want to do a change and there was finance available to the sort of implement gathering of the system would be awesome i mean it would probably make it easier unfortunately like we've spoken in the previous show that at this stage there is no special dispensation for changing in terms of incentives or investment and, and stuff like that but even if you don't have that the system starts paying for that it's by itself you're saving in diesel you're saving in other departments, in seed for instance, comparing a broadcasting of seed versus placing them specifically in a row with a set seeding rate. You already start saving in terms of that. Initially you might have spent more on your herbicides or whatever the case may be, but but as soon as you start coming into your rotation system, it becomes less and less. For instance, example is we, in the trials, for four-fifths of the lifetime of the trial, we used to spray insecticide. Um, we never had cover crops in the system or around as borders or whatever the case may be. And once we started introducing the covers and made a conscious decision to decide, and we initially started with the pastures, not spraying the pastures for insects, and then the cover crops got into the idea and suddenly we were seeing predators taking out the pest problems before we got to them and then we made the conscious decision for four years now we haven't sprayed any insect on the farm and not only on the trials on the whole lung research farm suddenly now we have insect eating birds back on the farm we've got a for the first time since i've been there a family of seven bat-eared foxes back on the farm we've got antelope back We've even got a badger or two, and it's amazing how it changes over time, but it takes time. Don't expect miracles in year one. Some people are lucky and, and see a, a huge improvement in year one, but that's one and two. Joe, average in terms of changing? Five years. Give yourself five years at least. I've heard so many stories of guys starting no-till and then after a year, and no, it doesn't work, and then stops. You need to make that shift in your mind. If you don't do that shift, Don't even start with conservation agriculture.
1: Thanks. There's a lot there to digest. All very important stuff. Some concepts like the last plow, like you might have to repair stuff in order to get going before you give up using too much iron. And the importance of we've been through a period of our history with agriculture where we didn't pay attention to the biological component of soil. But now that we're starting to pay attention to the biological component of soil, we can't pretend that the chemical and the physical don't exist. We need to balance those also. Some very interesting things there.
2: It's very true what you say, Andrew, but interestingly enough, looking back over the 15 years I've been busy with the trials, there wasn't a conscious effort per se initially to focus on the soil in terms of the biological life. And I personally think that's sorely lacking in our soil science departments in all of the universities for that matter. But by just implementing the three base principles, it came by itself. It's like the movie that Kevin Carson made and said that build it, they will come. And if, if you provide the habitat, they come and then you can start fine tuning and do some other stuff that's even more eco friendly, like like taking away the insecticide out of a program.
1: Yeah. So, at the core of it all, these practices, and if you extend from the three practices of conservation agriculture to the five practices of regenerative agriculture and the soil practices, lies soil health and how by doing these practices, you are creating a home for them, and they will come. And they asked all that.
2: We could take a step back and say, listen, you'll get a question that says, but we need to aerate the soil. We need to loosen it a little bit to get aerated. Then i ask the question, if I walk into a natural piece of bush, there's never been a plough, or never been disturbed in terms of iron. How the hell does that soil get aerated? Roots, does it? Building the soil structure, organic matter. And if we build that in the soil, you don't need to loosen the soil.
1: Loosening it with steel as a temporary application.
0: During the forming, we try to show that visually by showing soil that's degraded over many years compared to a soil that you can put your hand in and when you take it out there's an earthworm. Soil structure and soil texture, how that changed. And it's for everybody to see, that this is life, this is death. The comparison is so obvious.
2: A nice way of explaining it to the general public is, what we're trying to achieve is, think about if you live in a city, a skyscraper, a block of flats, apartments. There's a flat, a sitting room, a bathroom, a bedroom, and all of them are different sizes. We're basically trying building a block of flats underneath the soil. With that macro and micro pores, where water can infiltrate, gases can be released, it's in those micro areas. Where the bugs are working and changing organic matter into fixed carbon uh, and building that soil structure. So that's what we're aiming to do through that minimal disturbance of the soil. We all
0: know that one year, one bad year can financially ruin. How do you answer the question of risk? How much risk, if it's quantifiable, how risky is it to change from conventional to CA or conservation tillage? What steps whatever you take first because that that's the issue that i think is in many young farmers mind if you want to change you probably know it's the right thing to do how do we overcome that that risk that it can be ruined financially in that first year or the second year
2: that's where where i I said to start small actually helps bridge that gap not going head over heels necessarily immediately even if you have to borrow a guy that already has an implement or rent it or whatever the case may be Um, and then getting over that and maybe make one or two mistakes that's not going to cost you a hell of a lot of money might be the better option and then just to go helter-skelter and change everything it's difficult it might be really difficult telling people it's not too risky but we've seen it all across the world you can't predict what next year's weather is going to be like unfortunately so if you start small it will be a smaller mistake and as you go it will become easier and less risky. And then, like I said, financially, if you are able to buy implements over time, eventually you get to a stage where you need a smaller tractor that needs less fuel, less tractors, not so much movement anymore across the fields.
0: Yeah, and farmers will always tell you, but timing is the issue. The day I want to use my planter in optimal time, then it's not available if I don't want myself. But on the other hand, if you don't do conservation agriculture, you won't be able to plant if there's not enough moisture in the ground, in the soil. You'll have to wait you anyway. You'll have to
2: wait anyway. We've been seeding dry at Langfordens, for instance, now, even at tegeruk That's the norm now these days. But by building the soil through conservation agriculture, I can actually now plant with a disc seeder dry in the Swartland, which you wouldn't have been able to do 20
0: years ago. Easter weekend, you start planting, because mm-hmm. yeah? that's the optimal time. Yeah. doesn't matter what. The soil moisture content. No, exactly. We don't. <laughs> There's no plows anyway.
1: It's an interesting conversation because we just had some visiting agronomists from the United States here looking at our systems. And they're telling us about how much of the implements many farmers don't own any implements anymore. Implements are used on a contract basis. I really only know of that in terms of combine harvesters in South Africa farmers are getting in contractors to do combining. Do you think there's any chance of happening here or our way of we each doing it ourselves is part of our culture?
2: Having been in a few countries which implemented CA um, in that sense they also have their own machines whereas in Argentina again actually very few of them have their own land. They've got land barons and you lease the soil from them and then the lease is like one or two tons of soybean. So they don't own their own machines and they have Companies that does all the planting and the harvesting. I've thought about it a little bit in our context. Why not farm together in terms of a small corporate, one or two or three farmers putting their heads together? Not all of us are I'm good with the plants and the systems, but I'm not really good with the animals, because I've never had any animal science in my degree. If one farmer is really good with the animals, why isn't he managing three farms animals, while the other guy is good at planting everything? the only option or the negative there might be when egos come into it and say but oh, why isn't my farm planted first, exactly. is it first? <laughs> yeah. i think that's the big draw but if you can get over that whole idea we could see more ideas of a guy owning 20 planters and he does all the, the planting i'm not really good at predicting those kind of stuff
0: one must admit that in the southern cape for example timing is very important i'm not sure if it's as no, they, important they in important, other countries yeah. but. and rental options are available for planters in the southern cape so for harvesting but also for planters
1: yeah it's just interesting to look at different cultural practices in different parts of the world and how people are solving problems and johan you spoke in the previous episode of the learnings from other people coming here and just one sentence by one guy changing a whole farming practice And the importance of that in continuing to talk to other people and see more coming in. But we're supposed to be talking about the negatives, not the positives. (laughs) I don't hear this much. I hear it a little bit in the Western Cape. I hear it more up in northern parts of the country, summer rainfall region, maize region, that conservation, agriculture and no-till does not work.
2: It's a difficult one. Yes, there will be challenges. Not all soil types are easy to convert, but... Again, my question would be to them, what was the fields like or the area like before you started breaking it down with a plough? So you should be able to get back to that. And that's maybe where research comes in, specific long-term research in areas. Especially in those difficult areas. I know there's areas in the Western Free State that guys hold this view that no-till will not work. A lot of them uses rip on the row, which is not bad. you can have a look, there's a guy that actually wrote a very user-friendly article about conservation agriculture. And the article is called, Conservation Tillage is Not Conservation Agriculture. And the that, he actually has a really good figure that it shows from conventional, full-on plowing up to low disturbance, no-till. So just to explain the difference between high disturbance and low disturbance, no-till is just the planter type. Low disturbance will be a disc, high disturbance will be a tine planter that uses a shank and striptol is an area closer to no So it's not a bad thing, it's just what changes do we need to make to be able to do no in, in those conditions as well. I think and I suspect a lot of the problems is building organic material in the soil. And unfortunately if you disturb the soil too much you will keep on burning that and removing too much of the residue you will suffer. But I'm a researcher so I'm very prone to practical on-farm research I really think that we need to focus on the areas where adoption is slow or non-existent and then try and get research going there and support that research and give the researchers a chance to show that it is possible. It might take 10 years, who knows, but eventually I think that it will come there. Another insert that a lot of people are worried about compaction. Compaction, yes, certain soils tend to compact easier than other soils and a lot of people tell you it's They don't want the animals on the farm because of the compaction. Because the problem is, if there's not enough material on top of the soil, you will have compaction. If animals stay too long on a certain piece of soil, you will have compaction. So it comes back to managing that compaction. Then Rolf Derbs, his motto is, a lot of the compaction in the world is actually between the ears and not in the soil. I might be stepping on a few toes in terms of that, but again, things are evolving. When we started doing CA, regenerative agriculture is, I personally view it as as just higher grade CA. It's just a logical step down the line. Nothing is standing still in the world. If you just want to do the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome.
1: One of the big criticisms globally of conservation agriculture is its massive dependence on herbicides and the increase in use of herbicides when people go there because they lose the ability to use some steel to get rid of some weeds on their fields. Can we delve into that and take that where it needs to go?
2: Initially, that might be true because you're changing your system. But over time, if you manage it correctly, it becomes less and less and less. We're not using insecticides anymore on the trials, but that's 16 years down the line, 20 years down the line. And we see in the systems where we have animals, much lower use of chemicals or the need to use chemicals because the sheep adds another way of managing weeds. But again, it comes back to management. The whole CA system is really hands-on management, if you get that right. There are guys that will obviously are heavily dependent on herbicides, but in most cases that will happen more in the systems where the whole idea is not put together, in terms of a holistic approach. Let's just to give you an example, false scroll on is a problem. I know it's a problem in the north, but also here in the it south. In the north. By watching what happens in the field, where there's material on top of the soil, we don't see it. But just next door, even if they in a larger trial site, where they do a smaller plot trial, and they have paths around that smaller plot, you next year there's knizer. But just give a step to the right or the left where there's material, there isn't. So again, it comes back to over time.
1: Ultimately, it comes back down to the succession of your soil. Like, Where is your soil in the succession from an unhealthy degraded soil to a healthy soil that is able to selectively give you better performing plants who are attracted to those healthier soils, rather than classical continuous tillage annual agriculture. You're basically taking the soil to a stage where it needs weeds to fix it. And so as you move towards a higher succession of soil, you get a higher succession of plant selection and things like weedicides can start to be reduced. And so once again, we need to focus on the whole suite of practices, not just pick the ones we want to do and have a plan of how we're going to move down that line of succession.
2: Interesting, we had some research that came out of the long-term research about a Student that looked at the weed seed, which we monitored over time of the trial. And it came actually came out that in those systems with higher management and inputs in terms of diversity, management diversity, and diversity in terms of crops and the animals coming out, the more diversity in the system, the less weed numbers, the higher the diversity of weeds. So take ryegrass, which is a big problem in that area. In the system where we had animals, where they graze, where the urine and dung gets deposited, there's different types of nitrogen coming into the system. So less applied nitrogen, more diversity, less total abundance of the weeds, so there's lower numbers of, say, ryegrass, but you'll find there's suddenly four or five different types of weeds. But the numbers are so low, it's no economic impact. Whereas in the systems where you have less diversity, it only focuses on mainly giving food out of a bag, those single species becomes the problem, and high, high numbers of that. So again, having a system in place, building it over time, your dependency on that type of stuff becomes lower and lower.
0: Do you foresee a stage where there'll be too much mulch on the surface and the problems thereof?
2: We get that a lot. The next logical step, because I want to keep as much mulch as I can on top of the field, is going from a time seeder, which is the headache is having too much mulch for clogging and stuff to a disc seeder. Not everyone wants to do it, but yeah, that is the next logical step in managing that. But as soon as your life in your soil becomes more prolific and activated, you actually find that that mulch is broken down really quickly. And later on it shouldn't be a problem. But again, it comes back to what you want to work with. So in our systems where we have animals, obviously there's less mulch than crop rotation system where you don't have animals. But even that, we manage so that we have, at least at the end of the season, before we start planting, have at least 50% material left, which is not maybe the optimal. I would love more, but still, we've managed to improve our carbon building, even nitrogen building in the soil. But again, it might take a few years. Nature goes into balance. I think it will sort itself out. Some of the researchers in South America said that initially had the problem as well. But over time, as the biology improved, those come less and less of an issue.
1: I think a lot of that comes down to diversity. And, you know, when we have spent so much time going to monoculture and such a small diversity, and then, well, it's not surprising that the pests that we are focusing are going to multiply and the things that eat those things are not going to keep up.
2: And I think as the whole world we live in and consumers needs and preferences are changing. The pressure on research becomes more and more to actually look at alternatives, more biological approaches to managing pests than just looking for a new chemical. If we're really straightforward with each other, new chemistry coming out in terms of herbicides, forget about it. So there will come a stage where we don't have any options left. So if you've not made a difference or a change looking to get away from these types of things, you're going to be in big trouble. And unfortunately, that's the reality. I mean, there's more and more pressure on things like glyphosate not being sprayed anymore, 2,4-D, name it. It's happening in Europe. And as soon as it gets banned there, it will start to move across to other countries as well. So rather be prepared for not having it than waiting for the big boom to come and then, then you're behind. Is it a
0: situation where those chemical control are moved towards seed treatment, to sidestep herbicides and insect control on the fields itself.
2: It's currently being done already, but but you have seed treatments again. I was still wondering, with seed treatments against, say for instance, um, some of the fungal um, problems, we would like certain fungus in the soil because they are beneficial to a crop like wheat. And if we treated, what's the impact in terms of that? So it's a very fine line and it's really difficult. I mean, we don't have all the answers yet. There's so much more that needs to be done in terms of research just for CA alone.
1: There's a lot of claim about precision pesticides, but the claims are generally larger than the reality.
2: What I ask myself usually is, why are we spraying a whole field for a weed? If it isn't in the whole field, sometimes it's really small patches, but now we spray a whole field for it. Why
0: don't you just spray that little spot? There's also development of zapping that.
2: Yeah, there is new technology coming, yeah, that's been doing in Australia, working with cameras and spraying weeds and identifying it, yeah. Even microwave stuff that zaps the weeds. There is things coming, and there is a pipeline for development of these things.
1: You know, once again, we get back to that discussion of all the equipment. We have to come up with solutions that you don't have to spend more money on equipment than you spend on land in order to farm. Because while that might be achievable by our big farmers, it's not a global solution that we're looking for. So we have to come up with solutions that are more readily available to smaller farmers.
0: If we're very honest with each other,
1: nature knows best. I'm not going to argue with that, Hank.
0: Another question from another perspective, from Johan. How realistic is it to see CA as a method to generate topsoil? If I've got a farm somewhere in the Witsant with very little topsoil, I want to improve my natural resource, my farm. Is this a method to do that?
2: Definitely I think a really good way of actually building topsoil. But again, it, it will take time. You break it down quicker than you can build it. But you are able to build topsoil. But then you have to employ the whole package. You have to keep your material as much as you can. I'm not saying you don't have animals on it because they form part of the solution. It's just managing it, and over time you can rebuild your topsoil. But if you remove stubble and take it away and maybe sell it to somewhere else, and I know certain farms need material, but rather grow it yourself than buying it from someone else is the optimal, I think. But you can. But if you keep removing and mining certain things, or just doing one or two of the base pillars, it's going to be a struggle.
0: Topsoil is an invaluable resource. You can't buy it, but you can generate it.
1: I mean, I think that's what we've really learned in this whole revolution is like I was taught at school that it took 10,000 years to make topsoil and etc, etc, etc. But that's actually soil. That's base material of rocks breaking down to become base soil. It's the plants and the interaction with that base material that creates what we actually call soil, the living entity that is soil rather than dirt. And what gives me great hope for the future is how remarkably quickly farmers are able to do this when they change their practices. If you think about it in geological terms, that in three to five years, farmers are turning around their soil from being pretty much dead and dirt rather than soil to having soil that's starting to become healthy and systems that are starting to become healthy and decent organic matter levels, decent water infiltration, decent water holding ability through those four week five week droughts in the middle of the rainy season all of that sort of stuff is very inspiring for the future and what we are able to do we need to change the way we look at solving problems you know, too many of these problems that we've tried to solve with our brilliant minds in agriculture have been like an economic solution a silver bullet to this problem rather than a bigger picture solution to the problem and often there is a bigger picture solution It might just take twice as long, but in the long run, be a lot cheaper than that silver bullet and all the unintended consequences that came along with that silver bullet. So we've spoken about how, you know, there are three pillars of conservation, agriculture and five pillars of regenerative agriculture and how we need to do these things. But they're not recipes. There's not a product that you can buy in a jug, as the Americans say, and, and go and read the recipe and add it to your field. It's got to be designed in terms of your individual farm and the context of your area. But underlying that, Johan, there are principles and those principles form the basis from which your plans must be built.
2: No, definitely. Those three pillars, the base pillars, is critical. So if, if you're not doing that base once, nothing can build on that. So if one is missing, it will be slower. Getting back to the base three principles of minimal disturbance of the soil, so moving away from plowing everything five, six, seven, eight sometimes passes over the soil. It's crazy. Bringing in crop rotation, alternative crops, bringing in pastures if you can or if you want to. Not everyone wants to farm with animals, but there is benefits to it, definitely. And then keeping cover. The one guy actually said, a plowed field is like a naked woman on the beach. Really nice to look at, but it's not the right thing to do. <laughs> Let's face it, the smell of ploughed earth is actually nice, but that smell is actually the dying off of the organisms in the soil that you're smelling.
1: And it gets less and less as the, as years, as the years go like by. On, when I grew up on the farm, it was a great smell. Now it's not so great anymore no. because there's not much life left that's there too. True.
2: In another instance, a guy said that conservation agriculture is not beautiful agriculture in terms of the farm maybe looks haphazardly because of the material that's lying there. And Do I want a nice farm and then not being able to sell it or get good money for the farm if I want to sell it or handing it over to my son and my grandson. I'd rather take a farm that doesn't look that beautiful.
0: If you can look at the farm from underneath the earth yeah. and see the earth world, well, see the living creatures it's, in the soil, well, yeah. then it's looking so, good.
2: For so long, we've had this idea that soil is a medium that we put plants in and we need to give it everything instead of thinking as a living organism.
1: I come back once again to the energy, the cost of putting everything in In pretty much in parts of the Western Cape. We're kind of practicing hydroponics, but it's really risky hydroponics because we're not in charge of the water supply. So (laughs) it's a big gamble that we've got to work out how to get more of those inputs from our soil and less of them from somebody else who we have to pay money to.
0: Things like green fertilizer, fertilizer, nitrogen, that's an issue, that's a problem long term. So what's the solution?
2: Well, there's legumes. Unfortunately, we don't have a big choice of legumes at this stage. Developing, there is some awesome legumes and indigenous legumes in the fungus. Unfortunately, we don't have the programs to actually develop those into a commercial crop. I know the Australians are very good at that. They've got a team that works on pasture legumes. They actually came to South Africa, found Lebekiai, which was a native, and went back to Australia and have the, the capacity to build it into a commercial crop. Or not a crop, but a pasture for really sandy areas, because that's in the, the West Coast that it grows. Luckily we had the input we were visiting there when they launched the new cultivar. One of my students that was with us actually got to name the plant, and now it's called Isanti or Sand. At least we had that input and it came from us, but unfortunately that's happening because we don't have programs like that developing local stuff into something that we can use on a broader scale. But legumes definitely can help improve that. And then just getting your living soil going that is recycling the material the residues and breaking it down. We haven't really talked about burning. For me, it's a bad word, really bad word in terms of cropping. A lot of reasons why people will tell you why they burn their residue. I always ask the question, what's the cost of that match that you're pulling? Because wheat stubble is 40% carbon. And then roughly, for every kilogram of stubble you're burning, you're putting a kilogram and a half of carbon dioxide into there.
1: Well, how much energy are you putting out of your soil and into the air?
2: Precisely. And what is the impact on the organism in the soil that you're burning?
1: So my experience of burning is, having grown up in the sugar industry and then more extensive cattle farming, is burning is about ease of management. It makes the process of managing the farm easier to burn the stuff. And in terms of natural felt in in the KwaZulu-Natal Midlands and Drakensberg, where I spent a lot of time, the burning regimes there of burning every two to three, four years at maximum before the fire comes again. you just got to sit and work down what's happening to the organic matter there. You're basically haying those fields, and that organic matter is not going into the soil. And then your soil food web has got no nutrients coming back to it, and there's no cycle happening there. I heard Dr. David Johnson from the United States talking, and he was doing experiments in New Mexico in some pretty nasty sand. And... In his experiments, they were trying to grow soil organic matter. That's all they were doing. Lots of repetitions and different variations to see the effect. And he said that unless 60% of what was grown dry matter-wise was returned, there could be no increase in soil organic matter. So it's not possible if we're going to regularly burn to achieve that. It's not possible if we're going to always hay the same field to achieve that. It's just something we need to think about, that if we want to bring our soils back to life and get that from them, we have to feed them. They have two sources of food, and the one is exudates from the roots of plants, sugars from photosynthesis, and the other is breaking down material, organic matter and the nutrients and things they get from that. If we take too much, the system's going to slowly spiral down.
2: Without burning, it's not only carbon dioxide that goes It's things like sulfur, nitrogen, nitrous oxide. All the things that's disappearing, yes, it's a natural process as well with breakdown that goes into the air, but by burning it, it's so much more. And eventually you have to replace that from where? From a bag, which costs money.
1: And I'm not saying, and this is always, you have to say this when you're dealing with the grassland areas, is like I'm not saying burning shouldn't happen ever. You know, burning, these are fire-controlled systems historically, but they didn't burn every three years on the three-year, at the same time of year, at a time of year when there's no lightning. Historically, that didn't happen. Otherwise... The grasslands of the world would not be the great carbon sinks that they are in the soils. And basically all of our cereal crops on the world are grown on old grasslands where the carbon was laid down by the interaction of grasslands and ruminant animals. And that wouldn't have happened if there'd been a massive fire every two or three years across the Serengeti or across the plains of America. So while fire is one of the tools, it has over time become the only tool. And that's a problem in the grasslands. So you just got to think about this whole concept of, like, if we just keep taking from that soil and we're putting back a limited amount of what we're taking, basically we're putting back NPK and a few other little things on the side, ultimately everything else is going in a downward spiral.
0: How wrong would it be to argue that every 10 years or so after you you' the certain phase, for example, just to work it a little bit deeper to loosen the soil, is that a solid argument or not? I think I, I can
2: understand why, why people do it. It has a lot to do with managing the lucerne in such a way that there's not too much compaction. And unfortunately, in our conditions, it is prone to do that. So I can understand why it let loosen it. I'm always scared of being rigid. And I must admit, one of the mistakes I've made in research is thinking that it needs to be absolutely black rigid, black and white. And it isn't black and white. If you run into a problem like compaction in your CA system, then you might have to loosen it with the whipping action, but know what the impact is of what you're doing. And just don't do it because you can. And it happened to the Australians, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. They didn't lime in Western Australia. Now you will hear a lot about strategic tillage, but you have to kind of look at the reason why they're strategic tilling their no-till fields. They have to put the lime down because the acidity problems are below. And unfortunately, lime moves slowly. So, so they have to turn it over and mix it And while they're doing that, they're actually managing their weed seed bank, which built up over time, in that same action. It's not a separate action doing just the weed. From there on, they do the correct things again, in terms of now liming. So you might have to correct a mistake that happens, or a problem that you see developing. But just don't do something because you can, or you have an implement still on the farm that you are able to use.
0: So aeration is not an issue? That's not a term that's worth anything?
2: No. If your roots and your soil structure is built and you don't break that down, the soil will erate. The channels is there. But as soon as you break the top layer by just a little bit of scratching of that, you're actually breaking the channels that is already existing. I spoke to a guy that did some research in the north. And you'll get the idea that farmers say you have to till the soils to improve water infiltration. So this guy says, yes, for the first 10 millimetres maybe, then the soil closes down, the rest runs off. That's why they've got erosion.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen people tilling because of wind. So they till as if there were weeds there, when there aren't weeds there, to make ridges because there's big wind coming. And they make little ridges to reduce the wind impact because the maize plant's are about to be beaten to death mm-hmm. by sand. And then the next door farm where there's residue, they're not having to do anything. And their mealy plants aren't being beaten to death by wind and sand.
2: We've seen that in the Sunfeld here in the, in the Swatland area as well. Took one of my colleagues took a photograph of two camps next to each other. The one has residue, next door, same wind, same everything, just bare and stubble. Sand blowing, no sand blowing.
1: And that sand blowing is severely damaging to those plants.
2: Guys have lost whole canola crops due to that sand blowing.
1: So in terms of this compaction associated with the lucerne phase of a rotation, how much of that is about the management of the livestock on that lucerne during that phase?
2: Again, this is a personal view. I think the main or chief problem is that we tend to put all our animals in our camp a large camp, and leave them there until there's basically nothing left, and then take them out to the next field to graze. And with Lucerne, unfortunately because we're planting a, these days on a 300 mole or 260 mole, whatever the width of the, the rows are, that you don't get enough coverage. As soon as you overgraze that Lucerne, there's no way of the cover in between, and then the sheep starts walking in between, and that's where the compaction happens, because they, they keep the same rows that they're walking. After a rain event like two years ago, we were at 300 mils in a day or two days at Teherup, for instance. Some of the next door neighbors that you drive past had huge erosion problems in that past that the sheep were walking. Again, it comes back to just thinking about how you manage it and maybe still have the big group, but just move them in the camp quicker so that they don't eat too much of the Lucerne away. Because one has to remember as well, it has an impact on the roots of Lucerne. As soon as you remove too much of that material through grazing, the roots die off, which means the legume or the rhizobium that's on that roots dies off as well. And that's why you often see if a lucerne has been there for six years. I've been in a camp where we dug lucerne out. After six years, there's no nodules. So what's the use? You're actually planting lucerne to fix nitrogen to save nitrogen going forward. Personally, I think lucerne is bordering monoculture, if you have it for five to six years. Eventually, it actually stops making the nitrogen because it can start using the nitrogen that is already made. We still need a lot of research on that. We've had now had a student, for instance, that, that we still have to do that type of research in the Southern Cape, but just in the Swatland where we have medics, compared having a mixed cover crop, grazing a mixed cover crop versus a pure medic stand and a pure oats stand, looking at production and quality of the feed. And production-wise, the tested a Combinations all basically all beat the medics, and even a lot of them beat the hay or the, the oats crop. When you come to the quality, on par with medics, a little bit better maybe in some cases, a little bit weaker in some cases, but the amount of material that has been, the mass of feed that's available to the animal just makes more sense. So why not combine a cover crop with a medic in your rotation system if you have animals? It gives you more options. A better management and options of moving we, at commercial side of the Langevin's resources farm, for instance, we did a cover crop within the medics, sowing into the medics. And in 2021, we had a really good rain year, or relative to the, some other years that we've had. And in those camps that we did on the commercial side of the farm, we grazed four times with a flock of sheep. By the fourth time, grazed, the biomass was so much and so high, the sheep actually just stood there looking at the pasture. So they couldn't decide where to start it was too high for them. So it was the option again of having, maybe having... Some cows in the system as well. And medics never
0: really took off in the Southern Cape?
2: It's got a lot to do, a very specific range of pHs, and certain areas of the Southern Cape is too wet for the medics. It likes it drier, and that's why sometimes it works well if you have a mixture of medics and clover, because clover is more prone to the wetter soils. So if you have a combination, we actually experienced in the Swatland that in the wet year you'll see clover. Even now, it's more medic than there is clover in those systems. But every so often, if you have a really wet year, you still see clover coming through. I think some of it has to do with the managing of the pastures as well. We've looked at where we need to be with at Langemens, for instance, for how many pods or massive pods needs to be on top of the soil, left on top of the soil each year, to make sure that the pasture can regenerate over time. And it was about 500 kilograms per hectare of pods. And if you see that decline, you maybe need to sow in. Some of the oldest camps under medics at Langgemens in the trial has been seeded in 1996, haven't been reseeded.
1: And in terms of Lucerne in the Southern Cape, is anyone doing any experiments on putting cover crops in with that Lucerne?
2: A colleague of mine did some work. Unfortunately, they hit two really dry years when they did the trial. There is a possibility of doing it. It's just, again, finding the right combination of stuff and maybe having it done over a longer time where you have good and bad years. So you can really compare. But I, I think there is potential of that.
1: Every
0: so many years, there's a possibility to harvest uh, lucerne in the summer. And given the price of lucerne, it can be quite advantageous to farmers
1: to do that, money wise. Yeah, when they get some nice summer rain. Because lucerne is actually a summer crop, not it's a winter, winter crop. crop so.
2: so you have that opportunity where you don't have that opportunity mm-hmm. in the Swartland. But the same with if you have lucerne and grains, it opens the possibility of having a cover crop as well during the summer. And sometimes it hits, sometimes it's a miss. Uh, We had a miss the previous year, and then last year was a miss when we planted in the summer. And this year, some of that seed were coming up after a good rainfall. We didn't plant it this year again, but... So there is areas in the Southern Cape where summer covers are actually a very good, viable option, along with Lucerne. And then other areas are drier in in the Southern Cape, which summertime you probably won't get it. But if you have seed on the farm and you can do it, even if it grows 10 centimeter high, that roots in the soil make a difference.
1: Living roots in the soil and more organic matter later. So we struggled a bit to find too many problems once again with the solution. I mean, there are difficulties in changing any system on any farm. There are challenges, there's learning a new system, there are cultural barriers. What do you think that the biggest barriers to change are, aside from money and cultural barriers?
2: The biggest one is being scared that it's not going to work for you. Or not trusting yourself that you can make it work for yourself.
0: That first year
1: risk. It is undoubtedly more management-intensive agriculture and less recipe-based agriculture, so requiring the farmer's shadow on the on the crops, and that's a, a definite part of the equation.
0: And it must be daunting again to do something that your father didn't do, your grandfather didn't do, and your neighbour doesn't do either. So it's totally against the grain. It must be a daunting decision to make for any farmer. Yeah, who you can imagine. Definitely. But hopefully this series, this podcast, and the film series will, will help a little
1: bit. No, well, great. And thank you, Henk, for making that happen. SSK helped help to make himself. it happen. What a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Johan, for your time and your insights. That brings us to the end of Episode 5.
0: Farming with Nature is proudly brought to you by SSK and Food Firm Zanzi. If you are looking for a sustainable farming partner, then look no further than SSK. Visit ssk.ca.za for more information.